and welcome to the 495. I'm your host, Doug Sparks, Editor-in-Chief of Merrimack Valley Magazine. This, Lou, is our 25th the episode. The 25th show. Can you believe it? Yeah, I believe it. It's I, I mean, Weeks it's, of flying, though. Yeah, I mean, does it feel like more than that, or does it feel like less than that, or are we just... Have we completely lost all sense of, of we've where lost we are all in the universe? Of yeah. Because of, I mean, think of what's happened since we started this thing. Think of what's happened. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's, huh? it's crazy. Yeah. Um, we, we started in the pre-COVID world. I know. I know. It's, <laughs> we, we could, uh, or there were, there were glimmers, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember I wrote my January letter for the, uh, letter from the editor about, um, specifically was addressing like my, my interest in Kung Fu movies when I was a kid. <laughs> and in some ways I was dealing with, with, you know, COVID as people were, there was a lot of discrimination against Asian Americans at the time. And in some ways it was kind of a hidden way of addressing that mm -hmm. in, in a way that would be open to everyone. Yep. You know, cause I was talking about my childhood heroes, like Bruce Lee and things like that. And it was sure. like, I just saw something in the horizon. You were into that as a kid? Though? Oh, I love those yeah. movies. Yeah. 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 I mean, my, I was, I was not into sports. Yep. Bruce, Bruce Lee. I liked writers. I liked musicians and I liked guys like Bruce Lee. Yep. Uh, so anyways, it was, it, so it's like, Something was coming because I remembered thinking about that. You know, I remembered having this. Yeah, it was fear part of that, the discussion. Yeah. That things were going to, you know, get really volatile, and 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 of course they did. Uh, my guest today is Dugan Sherwood, uh, and uh, we've known each other for a while. Dugan, can you hear me? Yeah, I can sure. Yeah, I sure can. I'm, I'm enjoying hearing you just riff on your childhood. Well, we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll talk more about that, and and I'm sure we have some uh, some common interests there as well. You know, I was thinking today as i was putting together questions like i i didn't the first thing i knew about you the very first thing i knew about you glenn prezano the publisher of the magazine had said he's a nice guy you're gonna get along but i went to to meet you in your bicycle was outside of your office and you were running like two minutes late and i just remember i was i was envious i was really envious because to me the idea of commuting to work by bicycle and i didn't know where you lived i didn't know anything about you but to me that always seems really cool the idea of of commuting to work uh by bike and then since then bicycles like i guess there's been this crazy spike in popularity and and they're selling really quickly are you still commuting by bike um you know it's funny uh i went on a bike ride this morning with uh the owner of or the manager of riverside cycle in haverhill so I know all about like the shortage of supply for bikes. Okay, tell me all about it. But um, yeah, no, I, you're. Um, I'm gonna. I want to leave you with your uh, impression of me as a avid daily commuter <laughs> cyclist. That's much better than the reality. Why is that? Because you're working from home most of the time. I'm working from home. Um, yeah, there's been many days. I used to be far more disciplined about it for years. Riding to Boston, actually from. Hmm. I used to live in Linfield and would ride, you know, 15 miles each way to work because it was, frankly, saved me time versus sitting in a car. Right. And um, and so I've tried to do that now. I live in West Newbury. It's about a seven-mile ride. Um, there's been many days where I have um, uh, let myself down by just hopping in the car because it's just simply easier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I, I am right now speaking to you um, on um, – where I've gotten back very much back into the flow. Um, so I'm riding my bike daily and really enjoying it. Yeah. So uh, for people who don't know you, who are you? Uh, what's your role? What do you have to do with the city of Haverhill? Cool. Um, yeah, so I, um, it's funny. I just celebrated my two-year anniversary working in Haverhill. So I'm, I'm still, uh, I think, a, a, a new entity, a new person in, in the community. But um, it feels like I've been there forever, frankly. Um, yeah. So and you, I, it feels that uh, way because of so because of, of 
just in general or because of everything that's happened this year? No, uh, it's in general, I would say uh, it's, it's intense. Um, I got involved in I, I had been working in Kendall Square in Cambridge in the very much in the heart of like the startup venture capital scene in the Boston area. And that work was putting me, you know, down the hall from some of the best minds and some of the deepest pockets in in the Boston area, uh, right across from MIT, and um, and that was inc- just an incredibly it's a unique environment. It's just an incredible experience, and that work that I was doing down there brought me to a lot of cities that are not Cambridge or Boston, that are um, what I would call sort of post-industrial, once were cities: uh, St. Louis, Missouri, Rochester, New York. You know, uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, um, these cities that grew up with some form of product or technology um, that were, many of them are born on a river, um, but they all but their economies have changed, not necessarily in the positive. Um, and um, and yet there's these there's this wonderful resurgence of these 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 other cities that are not necessarily on the coasts. And um, and I live in West Newbury. And so I was ready to go do something else. And I really wanted to get involved at, in local economic development because I really believe that these cities, these post-industrial cities that once were, are coming back. And I want to understand more about how that's going to happen. And it just so happens that I live next to Haverhill. I live between Haverhill and Newburyport. And I never once wanted to go work in Newburyport. I wanted to come to Haverhill. It's a real city. Um, I knew it would be a challenge. Um and um, and I was fortunate enough to find some people who were willing to take a shot on me. And so right now I, I've been for two years serving in two organizations. One, I run the Chamber of Commerce in Haverhill, the Greater Haverhill Chamber. And then I'm also part of what's called the Haverhill Foundation, uh, which is a private uh, uh, philanthropic organization that puts money into different causes um, and developments in Haverhill. Yeah. So you mentioned these, these post-industrial cities and, and there seems to be... Um, I can't remember the, the word you used was you say like a resurgence. So there's there's this new um, energy. Why is that? What's what's changed historically so that places like Haverhill now are, are coming back from maybe I'm, I'm exaggerating, but coming back from the brink or being revitalized? I think that, um, first of all, there are some there are some reasons why 25, 30 years ago, Silicon Valley sort of became Silicon Valley. They have been able. They were basically really smart about leveraging the resources they have and really taking advantage of them, and then staying the course and being disciplined, really knowing who they are. Um, and um, and now those cities are frankly cost prohibitive. Um, they are um, congested. They're oversubscribed, hmm. and so and all these other cities, I think, have um, have been challenged in the late 20th century to really think about what their, what their resources are, what their assets are, what their, what their personality is, who they are, um, what resources they have. Um, these are bigger cities, generally speaking, than St. Louis, than, than um, Haverhill that have, you know, usually university presence. I'd spent a lot of time in Philadelphia and, and Providence as two other examples. Um, and so um, these cities have all the resources of larger cities. Uh, they just haven't put all the pieces together in a way that is as forward thinking, I think, as something like Boston or um, uh, or San Francisco, just as two examples. Um, Haverhill is not um, in the conversation yet, but I see all the ingredients yeah. in a city like Haverhill to become something much, much greater than it ever was and to be something where people 
frankly, get on planes and come from all over the country to say, wow, what's going on in Haverhill? How, what are they doing that's so remarkable? Yeah. So what if, so now that you've been in St. Louis and you've been in other cities, what is it that makes Haverhill unique? Well, first of all, um, Haverhill has a couple of things, ge- geographically speaking, going for it. One, it's 35 miles away from one of the largest economies in the, in the world um, and one of the most entrepreneurial markets in the world. And yet it hasn't really tapped into that. Um, second of all, you have this gorgeous river running through a beautiful downtown um, and those things are still very important. If you think about where people want to live and the quality of life they want, downtowns, these charming little cities, um, are very special. Um, and I think to some degree, a lot of people have overlooked them. Um, and so I believe that as Haverhill um, uh, grows and the wealth in the community allows them to do more developments, I think that it's only going to improve things. Um, you and I got to know each other on the Merrimack River last year, Doug, and, and so you know, we we know how special this river really is. Um, and, and, and yet, how many people don't really understand it? Um, they think it's dirtier than it is and, and those sorts of things. So you have all those things. But the, I would say the biggest thing that I think Haverhill has is um, it has incredible diversity of its people. You have um, a wonderful mix of people who have been there for generations. So your traditional New England mill towns, Irish, Italian. Um, and then yet over the past 50 years, you've had this increase in the Latino community. Um, and to me, that represents a lot of what America has actually been going through in the cities that I have seen that are outperforming and are really forward thinking are those that see these things as strategic um, and see the diversity in their community as a tremendous asset. And without question, that's what I see in Haverhill. You have all different levels of economic wealth, um, which means that you're going to have different to different levels of workforce and different levels of population. Um, and, uh, and so I think that there's, a, there, there's enough good study out there to show that cities like this these are important ingredients in terms of economic growth. And so um, I really feel like Haverhill has, does, it has, it has all the pieces. You just have to put them together. Yeah. So beyond aesthetics, beyond just the, the, the look of the Merrimack River, right? Why are rivers important to an economy? Um, there's not a lot of trade going up and down the Merrimack River these days, right? Uh, so it's not, it's not necessarily a trade port uh, or anything like that. I think for a place like Haverhill, it speaks to um, uh, the overall uh, quality of life that residents want to have. Um, a river that's respected and used properly um, is a place where you take your children down there to go kayaking or boating or fishing or swimming. Um, so it, it's part of the romance of life. Um, and, um, and so that's really where it is. It, I would say tourism as well, but Haverhill doesn't have much in the way of tourism right now. Um, so, but it's something that I'll put it this way. Um, when I decided that I wanted to leave Cambridge, I did not go look up in Salem, New Hampshire, even though it's close by too, or, you know, um, other areas because it didn't have the charm Hmm. that frankly Haverhill has. Um, and that's whether it's the beautiful old 19th century buildings, these old mill buildings, um, or the river running through it. It just seemed like, um, there was more to build on and, and more of a foundation that's just gorgeous and very special. Yeah. So let's let's turn the clock back. Actually, we'll turn the whole calendar back to 2019, to August, um, before the pandemic, before, before all these sort of tectonic 
life-changing events that happened right. in, in 2020. And you were part of the Voyagers, which is a group that went, that went all the way down the Merrimack River, hundreds, uh, 117 miles. So, of course, I, I was there for part of the trip, so I know what it was, but not everybody listening knows what that was. Uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, Lane Glenn, who's the president of Northern Essex Community College, um, a little over a year ago, uh, agreed to serve as the chairman of the board for the chamber. Um, and so I was fortunate enough to get to know him pretty well. Um, and he's an outdoorsman. Um, he, every, every free moment he has, he's climbing something or paddling in something. Yeah. Th this is an understatement, by the way, if you check out his Instagram, it's, he's, he's always posing on top of some, uh, mountain with icicles dangling out of his beard. Yeah, right. Um, right. Exactly. And, um, and so uh, I think um, he reached out to Derek Mitchell, who's a friend of all of ours, the Lawrence Partnership. Um, and uh, and I, I think it was because his brother wasn't available. Um, and so we got the call. Uh, he said, hey, would you want to do something stupid like paddle the entire Merrimack River? Um, and I don't think he finished his sentence before I got all giddy and was like, oh, absolutely. That sounds uh, that sounds awesome. Yeah. You know, uh, I'm not a kayaker, uh, but um uh, I can play one and figure it out, you know? So we built it from there and it was one of these wonderful experiences that wasn't overly developed. It wasn't overly subscribed. We weren't looking to make a million dollars for any organizations. We were out there in the beginning to simply just enjoy, enjoy nature, enjoy the outdoors, acclimate ourselves to this river. Um, that is an important part of the different communities. Um, but really not overthink it. Um, and by the end of it, we ended up thinking a lot more about it, but still not overthinking it. Sure. And that allowed us to have a lot more people come in to do some press around it, but and still preserve sort of the spirit of this, you know, if you can call a, a 10 hour paddling for four or five days straight, <laughs> a chill experience, uh, that's what we did. I, I still have my, my battle wounds. So um, on a personal level, do you have any particular memories of the trip that, that strike you or that are at the forefront of your mind? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, you know, f um, first of all, because I'm new to the Merrimack Valley in my career, this was a chance for me to really get to know different people, including Lane, uh, who I knew him largely in a work capacity. I didn't know you, Doug. I didn't know Glenn. Um, I was just getting to know Derek Mitchell, uh, State Senator Diane DiZaglio, um, uh, Christi I had not met Christina Minicucci, our state rep, nor had I met Jim Kelcourse, the Amesbury rep. So there was a lot of new relationships for me to, to build. And when you're on the water for going two and a half miles an hour for, you know, 10 or 12 hours straight, you're, um, you have time to have conversations. So there's just great rela relationship building. These are all new relationships for me. Um, uh, I think I remarked I had seen one bald eagle in my life. Uh, before we set out on that trip, and by by like hour two, I was sick of seeing bald eagles. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it was so beautiful. Um, one of my big takeaways and one of my learnings was: is this river needs a lot of money to get better. It has a lot of work to go. Every city pollutes this river at times, and yet there's great under misunderstanding about the work that's gone in to improve and clean the river. Um, and we were in and out of that river, as you well know, Doug, um, throughout the week, um, people swimming in it because it really was, um, it was swimmable. It was, it was clean. Um, and we learned a lot about the river true. So too. So it was, um, uh, just, again, it was just a great balance. The sure. people were awesome. I, I think of course a lot, I, I don't, for whatever strange reason, I don't, I don't run into a lot of music nerds these days. I'm a music nerd. 
you've discovered that, and you're also interested in music. And uh, I always remember it was it was me, you, and Senator Zoglio, right? Uh, where we had we had trapped her into her her nightmare because she, she, she was, is not uh, a music nerd. Yeah. Yeah, and we right. were talking endlessly on the river at one point about the Pixies and Black Sabbath and Nirvana and going on and on. And she she did not she she was great. She was really really funny, but she was not interested in that conversation in the least. Oh, right? I think, I think she found us off putting. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think we even tried to kind of rope her in a little bit, but that was <laughs> she was not interested in that at all. But it was great for me because I, I feel like I never get to just kind of oh man nerd you're... out and talk about that stuff. Talking to you about music is like playing catch with Tom Brady. Uh, you know, you just you you are you you're a student, um, and I love learning about this stuff around people who really either experienced it or studied it. I love the music, but I'm not a I'm not a historian uh, yeah. the way you are. So whether we're talking about that, you know, another thing I remember about you, Doug, was um, talking to you about sort of you know I don't know spirituality or. Mm-hmm anxiety or something and you you recommended to me 10 percent happier uh yeah the dan harris book harris book yeah yeah if, um, if people haven't read it it's it's a it's a great book it is a very non-new agey book about meditation right and and i love the title because it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't promise a miracle it just says if you do this meditation and you work on mindfulness it's going to make your life a little bit better it's going to soften the edges right it was uh, it was such a gift that you told me about that book. You know, I mean, there's just little takeaways from experiences like a kayaking trip. Where, frankly, one of my biggest my biggest takeaways was you and I having some sort of you know toss away conversation where you say, "Hey, you know, th- this is a book you might want to check out." And I remember I remember ordering it right there. Huh. I thought, you know, I, I don't know Doug too well, but if he likes it, I'm going to check it out. And um, and uh, I ripped through that book. I absolutely loved it. I have friends of mine who are um, uh, uh, sort of practicing Buddhists who are really into meditation. Um, and um, and the book that the as you sort of said, it's it's a wonderful it's a wonderful book because the guy really is he's not a skeptic. He doesn't even care. He's just like what he is. He's stressed, uh, <laughs> you know. So he's yeah. You know, um, I just I just need to I want to be happier in my life. I'm not looking for spiritual enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so he was just an articulate person who really represented what I what I was feeling too, and um, and so it sort of sent me down my own little path over the past eight or nine months that I'm still on. Hmm. Um, where I, you know, like tonight I'll be in a meditation class for an hour and a half. And it's really wow. cool. Oh, very so, cool. All right. Well, yeah. I didn't know that. I knew that I knew you read the Harris book, but I didn't know that this is yeah. continued on. So that's uh, that's cool. I think light enlightenment, Doug. I'll have to call you. <laughs> and let you know. Let let me know and and, and share your your insights. So yeah. uh, still in 2019, still pre-pandemic, you took a dive in the Merrimack River to do what? So um, so I, I, wear, I wear a couple of hats in Haverhill um, and, um, and they all tie back to, you know, how do we help this community grow? If, if I'm really believing that Haverhill has all the pieces of it to, um, to be a city that people um, want to move to, either that move to personally from because they can't, they got to buy a house and they live in Somerville in an apartment and where, you know, they can't, you can't spend $2 million on a condo when you're 30 years old. And for most people, uh, so places like Haverhill become options. Um, but we got to do things right that sort of tell people that we're a forward thinking city. And, um, and so, uh, this, di- I did a dive in November, uh, uh, right on the river, freezing cold water with the Harbor master in Haverhill. 
to locate some underwater obstructions that have prevented the city and the Coast Guard from putting in proper markers so people can, um, who have boats, who can't uh, navigate up the river into downtown Haverhill. Um, the reason this is important is there's already existing like a great restaurant scene, a really cool downtown vibe. And yet we have even more restaurants that are coming in um, in the next few weeks, actually, right on the riverfront in Haverhill. And so we needed to do something to um, locate these obstructions so we could um, mark them properly and tell boats to go around to, you know, to zigzag around this one point. Uh, uh, because at certain times at low tide, you, um, they can be, if you don't know where you're going, you can get in trouble. Um, good news, bad news is um, in November in the river, <laughs> we didn't find anything. Um, and I froze my face off, but um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I wanted to ask, I, I seem to remember, and tell me if I'm wrong, I seem to remember that there was some concerns that you wouldn't even be able to do it because it was so cold. Like, it wasn't even just like a regular cold November. I remember it just being like, ugh, like, are they going to have to, you know, is is there an EMT ready to drag you out of there if something goes wrong? Like, um, So, yeah, and I hadn't dived in like 15 years. <laughs> uh, so uh, it was, it was, um, it was not... It, it, the 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 good news was uh, it actually the cold wasn't that bad. Hmm. Once you got in the water, you have a thick wetsuit on and you're you're okay. Hmm. Uh, and I went with a couple of guys who were way more experienced. But the pace of the current was too fast, hmm. and the visibility was almost zero. And so when you can't actually control, we were actually tied together on rope under the water and just a few feet underwater, and we had a pretty good idea of where these obstructions were. Um, primarily around the Rocks Village Bridge uh, in, in the West Newbury area. Uh, but because we, we couldn't um, actually maintain a, a position because the current was moving so quickly and because the visibility was so bad, we, we pulled the plug with the, within a few minutes. Hmm. Um, was that terrifying? Was it terrifying to be under the water and not really being able to, to see very far? Um, yeah, I have enough of experience in scuba diving to know that when my breath, when I can't catch my breath, because I'm kind of panicking that to, to chill and, and get out. Yeah. And so um, I remember jumping in, being taken, my, my breath being taken away by the cold hmm. um, and then feeling really, really unstable because I could not, um, I couldn't see. I mean, you, 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 are you can vaguely see with a flashlight and this is at eight o'clock in the morning. You can see the guy who's four, four or five feet in front of you. Um, so I never lost my stuff. Uh, but, the uh, those guys knew that the current was moving so fast, um, and because of their experience, they knew that a we probably have had a really hard time finding uh, this obstruction, and b because the visibility was so poor, um, we actually could hurt ourselves because we bump into something. Hmm. So, um, and just to be clear, the visibility was bad not because the river was polluted; it's just because the the water's moving so quickly. It's just constantly stirring up the silt from the bottom of the river. Hmm. So that's the bad news. The good news. Yeah. So the bad, the bad news is we 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 had we didn't find the markers, uh, or we didn't find the obstructions. The good news is, uh, you guys, uh, Merrimack Valley Magazine ran a cool story, and a guy up in uh, New Hampshire picked it up, and contacted us and said, "Hey, I'll do a side scanning project for you." And for those of you like me who don't know what a side scan is, it's basically uh, doing a, 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 a an MRI on the on the bottom of the river. Um, and sort of figuring out exactly all the, it's doing a, 
you know, you're mapping the you're mapping the bottom of the river. And so this is a very expensive project. And he said, I believe in what you guys are doing. So um, he's going to be coming out in the, uh, this summer to actually map the bottom of the river for us. So that that was a really wonderful development. And then secondly, um, we actually have since then uh, put in markers uh, that take a big bite out of the uncertainty um, where we haven't necessarily nailed down every single obstruction, but we now have markers that will really help bit, uh, boats navigate. Uh, and those just went into downtown Haverhill last week. Yeah. So that's, we're, we're going to quickly flip the calendar all the way to today and what's going on right now, because I think it's a good bridge to talk about specifically what's going on in the river right now. I hear there's something going on July 1st. Is that right? There is. Uh, another, another nice thing that uh, came about from our trip last year uh, was uh, I got to know a gentleman by the name of Ken Taylor. He's, he's been on the podcast. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Plum Island Kayak, man. Um, <laughs> he's such a cool guy uh, and um, such a good person. Mm-hmm. And so we all got to build a relationship with him. He donated all the equipment that made that trip last year possible, which was amazing. Um, and he, we struck up a conversation um, uh, because I really do believe that accessibility on the riverfront is, a, is the best way to help activate the river. Um, I also have learned in my short time in Haverhill how many residents in Haverhill have never been on the water. Hmm. Um, and that's too bad. I remember our state representative, Andy Vargas, um, who's everywhere all the time. It was 2018 was the first time he ever went on the river hmm. uh, in his life. And so that's really unfortunate. And how are you going to get how are you going to get people to fall in love with this thing and really understand it if they've never been on it? Um, and so um, kayaks are these big state, you know, relatively safe, slow, uh, plastic boats, um, relative, they're not $50,000, they're hundreds of dollars. And, um, and so Ken and I struck up a conversation that ultimately included the mayor of Haverhill, where we said, um, effectively, you know, to the city, we pitched the city and said, if you give, if you let this gentleman here start a business for a year or two on the city docks that are right now really underutilized, um, then he'll run a business here and he'll, you know, he'll set it up. Um, and over the course of a few months, we built that, we built off of that plan. And, um, and July 1st, a week, a week from today, if I'm not mistaken, um, he'll be launching, uh, the business in Haverhill. So what is it, what does that mean? Are people going to be able to rent kayaks and where yeah. do they go and what's the distance and what's so, involved? For those who know Haverhill, downtown Haverhill, uh, has city docks right behind the tap. Wang's Table and all the other restaurants uh, in Washington Street, right in the heart of the city, right by, in that parking lot behind there, there's, there are docks on the waterfront. Um, Ken Taylor and Plum Island Kayak are setting up their business right there where you can do guided tours hmm. and rent kayaks and just go out and paddle around for a couple of hours. They're, they're, you know, I don't even know what their specific offering is, but you know, it's hour, two, half day, full day rentals. Hmm. And what, is there like a riverboat attraction that's coming soon too? So the gentleman who uh, put in the uh, channel markers uh, that now make it a safer navigation to downtown Haverhill is a local by the name of Tim Slavitt. Um, And for those who are from Haverhill for any length of time longer than me, knew his father, Red Slavitt, who sounds like a real character um, in Haverhill, who ran a tour boat business uh, up and down the river. I've seen pictures of Haverhill from years and years ago. So cool. Uh, and so Tim, Tim wants to bring that back in, and uh, in the vision of what his father did. So um, one of his sons just uh, passed the, uh, got his captain's license. 
my understanding is he's purchased a, a tour boat um, and uh, is going to be, I'm not sure what the timeline is. I, I wonder because of COVID and the delays that that has caused, if it's going to happen this year, but the plan is for that to uh, there to be a, a, a riverboat um, tour business also in downtown Haverhill. You know, it's, it's interesting because I was thinking as I was driving here that these like kind of COVID inspired or COVID, uh, COVID related delays might actually benefit these sort of like businesses like kayaking, right? Yeah. It do- doesn't seem ki- kayaking strikes me as like exceptionally safe or being out on a riverboat seems except exceptionally safe compared to maybe going to see the Rolling Stones at, at Fenway. You know what I mean? Well, it's funny. Um, like I have two children uh, who are, you know, in camp age, right? 11 and 13 years old and everything's been canceled. Hmm. All the sleepaway camps and the YMCA camps in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, you know, the, the local West Newbury where I live, the local camps here, they've all been, they've all been canceled because of COVID. Uh, and, um, and so I was talking to Ken about that. Um, and he's saying his camping, his, his day uh, programs and week long youth programs have been on fire. Wow. Because he can do it. He can do it in a safe way. It's easier to social distance uh, in a kayak on the river than it is to say, you know, a sleepaway camp. Hmm. So um, I actually got off the phone with him last week and turned right around and told my wife, I think we can, we should get our kids into the camping pro- into the kayaking program. So we're looking into it. Very cool. So getting away from the river and kind of moving into downtown, what's going on in Haverhill right now? So, uh, you know, I could take that question in about five different directions at the moment. Um, but let me sort of say what's, um, I'll stop short of talking about restaurants for a second. I'll get back to that. Mm-hmm. And that really is sort of the core of the chamber, which has always been to, to support and promote small businesses. And that's, so that's one hand that, I, that I'm working with. The other one, though, is, um, uh, you know, you and I are talking now. It's, I don't know what it is, a few weeks after the uh, George Floyd, the killing of George Floyd mm-hmm. in Minnesota. And, um, and the, um, the impact that has been had across the country. Um, I, um, I think that this moment it has forced everybody to think about their values and their sense of history and what's important to them. And, um, and so I've been thinking very, very hard about making sure that the chamber, uh, in its own little way meets this moment. Hmm. Uh, and so I have spent a lot of time, A, trying to help restaurants get permits from the city government, but also at the same time, really try to set the table for um, and pivot the chamber in a way that where we recognize that this is a very, very important moment mm. and that the protests that have gone around the country in some way are a platform for us to do something. Um, people can accuse me for being a guy that came from Cambridge, the People's Republic of Cambridge, um, but this is not a political thing to me. Mm. Um, I really think that um, long before the protests and Black Lives Matter movement uh, started to really uh, take on um, serious weight over the past few weeks, the chamber wrote down its values and put together a strategic plan that really sees the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion as really the cornerstone of economic growth in the 21st century. Um, I'll say that again, economic growth, in my opinion, is not possible in the 21st century, unless you really understand the power 
and the economic strength of being an inclusive and diverse community of people. Mm. And one of my observations about Haverhill and other cities that I have worked in is that they're not there. Um, and Haverhill for its size, um, I, um, I used to think Haverhill can move faster because it's smaller than a Providence, Rhode Island or a St. Louis, Missouri. And sometimes I wonder if it's too small. Um, and so I've, I've worked hard to be, to understand my position on these issues as the leader of an organization and then to, um, work with, um, people in the community who are uh, leading on this issue, people of color, um, and really understanding what it means to be an ally and what role the chamber of commerce should be. And if I'm creating organizational suicide by making a statement about this in a place like Haverhill where there, it is not Cambridge. Um, so that's really what I think, um, it's certainly carried the majority of my thoughts over the past few weeks. Um, and I know I'm not unique in that respect, but, um, I, every day I wake up feeling like, um, as a, as a very small organization, we're, the voice that we are um, adding to this conversation is important and we're on the right track. We have a lot of work to do. And this is the type of thing where I believe that if we do this right, then maybe our children um, can look back in this moment and say, man, you know, it, it, in the early 2020s, um, people did some bold things that actually helped the, the cause for, you know, again, I, I, I don't think I can over understate this. I mean, just, they can, um, this is, this is a, I really think of this as um, a contribution to civilization if we can help become a little bit more equitable. Um, so that's really where my head's at. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned this, your, your, your bachelor's degrees in history, right? Yeah. And it's yeah. funny that you're thinking about this in terms of history, but I, I almost like, like, is it too much? Like, is there so much of the weight of history now? Like you came into this in 2018 and you know a, a lot of work to be done a lot of stuff to be done but you i you probably didn't feel the weight of history on your back no um and um no i, I don't but i um and i've had to be careful at times to be um uh it's really been an intellectual challenge in some ways to to make sure that i meet people where they i am where where they are hmm. to also not come in with too many assumptions that i know what i'm doing or that i have the answers um, I've worked in enough cities where I kind of came in earlier on in my life, a little bit like a know-it-all, um, only to learn that I didn't know anything or that I didn't have all the answers. And so I didn't do that with Haverhill. Um, I've learned so much from so many people, and I'm not suggesting that um, that I have the right answers or the right vision for you know, how to think about Black Lives Matter or opening up COVID-19. Um, but what I really do value very, very much is that I'm in a small city. I'm in a community where I can go have the conversations with people who will help me understand and we work together. I spent three hours yesterday at the police department. Hmm. Yeah, well, I saw that online. What what happened there? Yeah, super cool. guy named Dennis Everett, uh, who's a, a, a black guy uh, in Haverhill who runs an organization called Pose power of self-education. He and his wife, Kat, founded this years ago. Um, and it's a it's a it's um, an important organization that I think I'm starting to just now understand its value. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mobilizing community organization. Um, and since Michael, or, um, 
since George Floyd, uh, Kat and Dennis have really sprung into action to help push the city um, quickly to begin the conversation um, of, and to begin reflection um, and to hear from people whose voices really haven't been voiced um, or haven't had that platform. And so Dennis invited me to meet with, um, he invited me, uh, the incoming chairman of my board, Matt Juros, who's an architect in town, uh, several church leaders to meet with a gentleman by the name of um, Rick Welch, who's the police department's um, labor president, uh, the union president rather. And, um, and this was simply um, Rick, Detective Welsh, opening up the doors to the police department and saying, let's, let's talk. Um, and Dennis saying the same thing, saying, let's talk. Hmm. Uh, Dennis came with some uh, very thoughtful and thought through ideas for the police department, um, because that's where all the energy I feel like right now still is getting concentrated is it's all looking at police reform. And I think that that's an important conversation. It's certainly not my area of expertise, um, but at some point it's going to have to also, um, the rest of the community is going to have to start to look in the mirror the way the, way the police department's being forced to. Um, and so it was a wonderful conversation because you had, um, you had the expectation that you had the, you know, the black and brown community um, and you had the police department, you would expect them to be on different sides of the table. Um, and that, that would just wasn't the case. A lot of the things that Dennis was talking about were, um, new ideas that Rick said, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and Rick had some ideas and counterpoints that Dennis said that makes a lot of sense. And so, Hey, you know, I actually wanted to bring this up because it's one of the interesting things I found about the Voyagers is that people from different political ideologies, you know, different parts of the spectrum got along really, really well. And it made me think about Massachusetts and smaller communities. Is there something in these smaller communities that lets us do things and form consensus and speak and have dialogues in a way that might not even be possible in like New York City or Boston? I, I think the size, I think the, uh, I think it's just the size of the table. I think smaller, um, I think that, uh, I certainly think that the conversation at the national level has been broken long before Donald Trump, uh, but he stomped on it. And, um, uh, uh, but the, the conversation nationally hasn't, it just seems like it's not hot not happening. Um, and, um, and I'd say even at a state level, it's probably too difficult. It really comes down to the communities, um, small cities, small communities. I think these conversations are probably happening at the local level in places like New York City as well. Just um, I, I don't I don't know. It's certainly happening in cities like St. Louis, Providence. The work is going is to fix to help things become more equi- um, you know um, qualitative and inclusive is generational work. Um, I don't think that that we're going to make, see something that makes a, a drastic change in, in the next 12 months or 18 months. Um, this is the type of stuff that's going to take years, but I really believe Doug that, um, the change in this day and age is going to come from the city level and work its way up. Hmm. Um, I just don't think that there's going to be some sweeping national conversation that will boil down to the local level. So 
Um, again, I, that's one of the reasons why I'm grateful at this time in my career, I'm working in a small city. Yeah. So I, I do want to talk about restaurants in the, in, because this is where people are going to, like if you live in Lowell and you, you don't work in Haverhill, you don't live in Haverhill, if you live in some city in the Merrimack Valley outside of Haverhill, this is probably going to be the reason you're going to Haverhill for a lot of people, I assume. Totally. There's a great farmer's market, too, by the way. If, if, uh, yeah, people haven't it's, been there. it's a very cool farmer's market. Um, awesome farmer's market. Yeah, yeah. So this is, this, is the, this is the gateway into learning about Haverhill and to experiencing Haverhill for a lot of people where they can see, you know, see this energy you're talking about. So what's going on with the, uh, the restaurants in the community right now? Yeah, so, um, and I'm going to sound biased for just a second. Um, uh, and the mayor is not paying me to say this, but I am so grateful to um, the pace um, that our mayor and the city has worked to, um, to support restaurants. Um, restaurants in Haverhill have been up and serving um, pretty much to the day when this, the state announces that they can. As example, they, outdoor dining began on June 8th. A lot of restaurants were serving on June 8th. Hmm. That's um, a credit to them uh, for simply surviving the past few months, um, but then pivoting and, and finding the ways to sort of um, you know, increase this week, we now have indoor seating is now at a limited capacity is now back as well. So um, if you um, at the Chamber's website, we've been actually collecting all the restaurants. There's like 60 or 70 restaurants in Haverhill. Do you know the webpage off the top of your head? Uh, just go to HaverhillChamber.com. Okay. And it's easy to navigate from there. Hmm. Um, but uh, and it's on our face. It's on our social media, too. We're, we're posting about restaurants opening up and running lists and things like that. Hmm. The vast majority of restaurants that anybody used to love are back. Um, and they had, most of them hadn't left. Most of the restaurants, man, if you want to see an, uh, a, a, a warrior, look at a small, small restaurant owner, right, who's had to, I mean, these, these businesses at best are usually week to week. Hmm. And so to have their entire business model just shelved um, and then for them to sort of figure out how to get back to the surface and survive, um, I'm, I'm just so impressed and 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 delighted to see that things are starting to open up a little bit more. Yeah, and in the face in the face of all this, there's new restaurants opening too, right? Or is there, there's at least yeah. one. Yeah, let me throw out the name. Uh, there's uh, it's going to be awesome. There's a restaurant called Barrio. Hmm. Barrio Tacos, Tequila, and Whiskey is their subheading, um, and it's it's real food. Um, it's going to be right at um, right on the riverfront, uh, actually right across the street from the farmers market, which opens this Saturday. Uh, at the Goki parking deck. If anybody just drives to downtown on Saturday morning and starts wandering around, you will run into the farmer's market. It's right on the, it's right on the main drag. Um, at a development called Harbor Place right on the river, um, Barrio uh, Tacos, Tequila, and Whiskey will be opening up in just about three or four weeks. Um, and uh, this is a business that the closest location to uh, Haverhill is in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, a wonderful couple, uh, Dan and Maggie Osborne, um, in, from Atkinson, um, uh, run, uh, own Port, the Portsmouth Barrio. The place is just super cool because it's great food. It's authentic, um, real drinks and, um, and the price point is reasonable for everybody. Mm. So if you want to go and have top shelf tequila and, and whiskey and great, uh, homemade tacos, this place will you can you can go there, but also if you just want to you know feed your family for twenty five bucks, you can go there as well. I mean, a high end taco is still only like five bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gonna it's just got a great it's got a great style, a great vibe, and it's right on the riverfront. It'll be you know with outdoor seating, so it's gonna be perfect for the summer. 
Yeah. So uh, what about the Heights? What's going on with the Heights? Do you know? So the Heights. Salopoli's uh, first major, major splash in Haverhill uh, will be launching. Um, the Heights is, if, again, if you just tool around downtown, one of the buildings in downtown will not look like the others. And that's the Heights. It's a 10-story building. It's almost done. Uh, it's a combination of um, a residential, pretty high-end residential. Northern Essex is launching a culinary program, the college. That will be housed there. Um, and then a restaurant and a bar. And that bar just so happens to be on the 10th floor. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have a time frame for when that's opening. I'm crossing my fingers that it's going to be this summer. Um, they were they were on schedule before COVID. And obviously, that sort of screwed everything up. Um, but that's going to be uh, the best views. Uh, one of the best views in New England. It's got to be at the top of that that building. Wow. So uh, before I open this up, because I want to, we're running a little bit running out of time and Lou always has some good questions. I wanted to ask you one more thing. And here's where it gets, and I apologize in advance for this question. Um, Since you do have a background in history, if you're writing about this era, what you're going through right now, for historians, say a hundred years from now, what would you want them to know? Uh, What a... (laughs) I swear <laughs> you can. Yeah. What a shitty question, Doug. Uh, um, you know, uh, this is where my heart is, man. So I'll just, I'll, you know, is one of the reasons I was a history major. I was a Native American studies minor. I grew up on Cape Cod. So go figure. Right. I mean, like pissed off my father because I wasn't like a business major and I just didn't know what I wanted to do. So I followed a subject that I found stimulating and and so I really go back to, the, you know, my love of history started as a kid because it was so, there were just the things you learn. You learn about slavery and you're just like, how does that happen? How do people, how does that happen? And so I've never let go of that. Um, I've always been stuck on, on fairness um, and treatment of people and blah, blah, blah. Again, lots of people like, like me, but I've, I've tried to balance that between um, my career and my avocations in my life. And, um, and so I feel like a um, uh, hundred years from now, I hope that people will look back and say the contribution um, to, to um, creating equality, a true meritocracy in the United States was, was done by a group of people um, who were alive at this time. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I um, you know, I mean, that that's really where I'm going. And so I don't, I don't mean to dramatize the work that I'm doing or the impact. Um, the older I get, the more I realize it's, you know, I'm just really trying to make sure I'm taking care of my own head and my yard and my family and, and trying to do a little good of good around the corners that I'm part of. Uh, that's where I'm at. That's a, I like your answer. I know you didn't like the question, but, <laughs> but, but you handled it well, my friend. Uh, Lou, do you have any questions for our guest? Yeah, I'm going to ask Dugan an even deeper question okay. <laughs> Re- related to Haverhill. And I'm Haverhill born and bred. I was born and raised in the East Parish District out by Rocks Village and yeah. out there. And so I'm very familiar with Haverhill. And I've watched Haverhill struggle over decades uh, to essentially get its act together like you talked about. And I could go on about all kinds of challenges like lack of river-oriented development, which is what you talked about. That's huge. But to me, it all starts with downtown. And downtown, like the rest of Haverhill, is basically a chariot of horses 
without a harness. Everybody's going in a different direction. Downtown is very diverse. You look at the heights. Across the street from the heights, the building they're using for an office is basically an abandoned building next to yep. this huge building that's going up. And you've got downtown, you've got mom-and-pop businesses and antique stores and uh, office buildings and things like that. And Washington Street has done really well. It's got a theme. It's got a purpose. It's got an attractive quality to it. What do we do with the rest of downtown? How do we pull those horses together? Monument Square is something that is totally underdeveloped. Merrimack Street is totally underdeveloped, doesn't really have a real theme, although a couple landmarks have been placed on either yep. end of Merrimack Street. This has been the challenge in Haverhill for a half a century now. How do you pull together downtown? Um, that's a great question. I like that question better than Doug's. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, Doug. Um, I don't think you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like I have, I have, I have a better. It's a, it's a more linear answer, I guess. Um, first of all, um, obviously, we are you. There's so many different cities that that have figured this out. Newburyport's a good example. Anybody who grew up in the Merrimack Valley or on the northeast shore, north northern shore of Massachusetts knows. 30 or 40 years ago, Newburyport wasn't the uh, charming place that it is today. Um, and um, and so um, I think there's a number of things at play. The biggest thing that's challenging Havel right now, that's stalling development, is the economy. And what I mean by that is um, there's, not enough, there's not enough money, there's not enough value in buildings and in development in Haverhill for developers to want to come in and improve these buildings. Yeah, that's chicken and the egg argument, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And so, but that's that's the once we flip that, that's when you'll start to see real change. And Lapoli came in, and I obviously don't know the details of how that's working, um, but I um, but um, you, he had the resources and the connections and the and the plan to do that. Uh, but it's very hard in a city like Haverhill, um, and so we're going to have to. We're going to have to work our way to it. And again, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to come here was because I really wanted to understand how cities like Haverhill get better. I think that uh, to your point, there are a number of things that have done that people have done that are very entrepreneurial that have worked well. Um, and yet like across the street from the Heights is a building that's, that's effectively condemned. Yep. Um, and I think that um, there's a couple of things I think that will need to happen. I'd like the, to see the city of Haverhill do more in terms of um, have have more of a presence around recommending, um, you know, uh, signage, uh, some sort of a version of a historical commission that's based in reality, but also puts um, some themes around the direction that the city wants to go in its downtown. To be very clear, I agree with you, Lou. I think downtown Haverhill is the welcome mat, and how you that's how you step into the city. And so if you're going to come and have dinner here and you're going to go to G's restaurant right next to it is the old Magnavox building that, that is shuttered. It doesn't tell the story that we want it to. Um, and I think that one of the roles that I can play at the chamber is to become increasingly vocal about that um, and to advocate for um, opportunities when they're state funding for doing some improvements and developments. But I think also it's, it's also pushing and leveraging the relationships that might exist already to some of the landlords that are sitting on land and not actually acting, moving on them. Um, there, there's got to be more levers, I think, for for landlords and building owners who are who are really leaving their buildings in a derelict condition, and recognizing that those are negative externalities on the entire city. The chamber, um, 
I, I'm not just a wine and cheese after hours chamber. I really am trying to build this place into advocating for specific uh, key initiatives. Downtown character is a committee that we created last year to tackle this exact issue. We want to make recommendations to the mayor, but not only just tell them what we think is wrong, but actually recommend solutions and then also help the city um, develop the resources to put those in place. And uh, I grew up in Haverhill. I live in Newburyport now, so I've, I've watched both of them. And, and you're right, in the mid-70s, Newburyport was New Bedford. It was, it was not a very attractive place to be. They have some geographic advantages there, but by the same token, as you said, Haverhill doesn't, doesn't use the river well enough in terms of there is land on the east side of 125 on both sides of the river uh, that could be developed, that could be a very attractive place for a restaurant or two, some riverside dining, things like that. Is anybody talking about that? Because there's land that you don't even—in downtown, you have to move people out to go forward. On the east side of 125, on both sides of the river, there's not much to move. You could actually do some development there. The land is just waiting to be developed. Yeah, uh, and there's um, and there there are initiatives. There are some properties that are up for sale. They're trying to get them done. Um, I think the city has a pro, is very much pro development, and that's a good thing. Um, you've got, of course, you've got to be very respectful of the residences in the area. Right. You know, I've, I've, again, I know just enough about this to understand the complexities. I'm not, I don't have the solutions necessarily, but you want to put a development in Bradford um, on the riverfront, and you're realizing that you actually need to also create a half mile of road. Who pays for that road? Uh, who runs the sewer into that? You know, those are those are these are heavy lifts. So, um, I would say that. Uh, the city was did a really good thing last year by creating a master plan that looks at rezoning a number of areas for more development. Um, I thought it was a very thoughtful plan. It's been mostly um, embraced by the community. There's a few uh, uh, folks in town who want to see some more of the um, the uh, the land preserved so there isn't such density, and I completely hear them as well. Mm -hmm. Averill has the benefit of being a relatively large city in Massachusetts, so I think that to some degree we can all have our cake and eat it too. Um, the, but the other thing is, is so long-term, I think the city, these are, these are the types of things that are going to take 10 or 15 years to do, if not longer. And the city, I think is slowly doing that. And some of the development that that's happens in, in your lifetime in downtown Averill, the, uh, the mill buildings and the, uh, the residential, uh, downtown, those, those are not easy things to do. And those have happened. Um, Barrio is part of Harbor place, which used to be the old dead Woolworth building. And so. I know a lot about that project, and they moved a mountain to make that happen. Um, they sure the did. That building lingered in downtown Haverhill for decades when it was doing nothing at the very cornerstone of downtown Haverhill. Yeah, exactly. And how many people drove by that thinking that Haverhill's horrible? Um, and so um, there's still so much to do. And so um, that's why I say this is generational type work. Um, there's a couple things. One, um, there's no short of inspiration, though, in other cities. Uh, I took a group down last fall to Providence. And we met with the guy that created Waterfire. And if any of you listening have been to Waterfire, uh, this is a local artist who at one point, um, you know, threw a charcoal grill basically into the <laughs> middle of the river in downtown Providence, lit it on fire. And now there are 180 little pods that they light up throughout the summer. Um, and they create this wonderful visual exhibit on the riverfront. And uh, I would say hundreds of thousands of people probably travel to Providence eat in restaurants, stay in hotels, parking, parking garages, et cetera, to go watch um, with their families this wonderful art installation on the river. I do think that Haverhill suffers to some degree from creativity uh, or that they just haven't been able to mobilize. And I think that as um, 
as new generations of people um, move into positions of power. I think as more people um, want to come into the city, we have a wonderful superintendent who um, is doing really creative things in the um, in the schools. People like me who are not from Haverhill, but who really uh, found a connection with the city. Combining our energy and the things that we've seen outside of the city with a lot of the locals who who have the passion and the true love for the city, I, I really think that those are ingredients where great things can happen, both in the short term, like an art installation, um, and then long term, like developments along the riverfront. Yeah. So uh, we're almost out of time, but I wanted at least a minute to talk music with you. Have you ever um, have you ever seen Mistral Music? Have you gone to a Mistral Music show in Andover? Do you know about them? No. So they are, they're Chamber Music Society. They do concerts in Brookline and Andover, uh, and they, they're unbelievably good. Like even, I, I don't think you're a, we've even talked about this. You're not a classical music guy. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Even if you come into it from like a jazz background or rock and roll background, there's something about the immediacy and the spontaneity of seeing just a very small group of performers. And they also do really, really interesting work with tying together, um, uh, tying together the music thematically so sometimes they're working on literary themes sometimes political themes all sorts of different stuff it's fantastic and even just just in terms of the audio quality like if if you've like me i don't i don't see a lot of orchestral music when you go to see mistral music just the sound quality in the auditorium is unbelievable because it's three-dimensional mm. uh they're not doing much now but there's plans coming in the work in the in the, the reason why i mention this is julie skolnick the director is going to be on the podcast next week she's going to be our guest you should look into them and and i i kind of wanted to go into it a little bit more than than usual with you because i think they've had a hard time they're doing outdoor shows in brookline at their other kind of branch right their other location but they haven't been able to find a way to do anything outside in andover hmm. it would be really amazing to get mistral to do something outside along the river i'm just imagining me i'm imagining that tequila you're talking about <laughs> i'm imagining those tacos and i'm imagining this really really beautiful intense chamber music coming up from the water yeah. i think it'd be really cool um so i'm gonna tune in uh so two things one is you just struck two chords with me one is we've had to kill off because of covid a couple of big uh music events uh, river ruckus um which is run by a great group called team haverhill um which is a, you know, all day, all evening, uh, live music in downtown Haverhill. But then also right in front of uh, Barrio for the past couple of years, we've had live music, you know, three or 400 people come out. Um, and, um, and so as we get more boats in the river, I think that they're and um, I think if we're creative enough and think thoroughly enough about it, we could do something this summer and still be thoughtful mm. about social distancing. So I'm going to check that out. The second thing I'll just share with you, Doug, is I'm going to check them out too, because um What's really, uh, I'm not, in, I'm not a passionate classical music person. Um, my mom, uh, uh, who grew up, uh, in a music family, um, uh, is that's her, that's her biggest passion. Hmm. Um, and, um, and she's actually, um, sort of getting, um, she's got some health issues. And so we've been, um, I've wanted, she's regrets that I don't have that, that love for classical music. So. I've let I've forced my 11 and 13 year old and and me we now meet and my mom runs a class every week telling us about classical music and Leonard Bernstein and and 
um, it's really been a, a, a lovely thing. That's great. And I think I've been to their shows before. There are young people there because it's it's just it's not stuffy. It's not it doesn't feel pretentious. It doesn't feel like you need to have a Ph.D. in composition to sit down and enjoy what you're listening it just feels really immediate. So I do hope you check them out. They have some recordings too, so maybe you can grab a CD and, and send it down to your mom if she's one of those people like me who still listens to uh, <laughs> to physical media. <laughs> yeah. Hey, thank you so much. I mean, you're a busy guy, and you just spent an hour with us, and I really, really appreciate that. Oh, hey, thank you so much. I've uh, uh, in, And congratulations <laughs> on your 25th episode. It's uh, Thank you. I remember you were going to kick this off, uh, and uh, so good, great job. Very That's cool. awesome. All yeah. right. Thanks so much, Dugan. I really appreciate it. Lou, thank you right. very much. We'll see Thanks, everybody next week. Happy with, 25th. Uh, yes, happy 25th. <laughs> Thanks, guys.